Luke 23, we have been walking through the, the gospel of Luke for some time now, and uh, we come today to this climactic moment in which Jesus dies. Uh, in some ways, the whole gospel has been moving us to this moment. So I want to ask that you would join me in Luke 23, starting in verse 44. We're going to read through verse 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returning home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I'm going to simply tag my sermon today, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Let's go to God and ask for his help as we study this text. Father, we come before you this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to the truth that is here before us. This is your word. It comes to us by your grace. Pray that you would give us hearts to receive it, ears to hear it. Pray that you would help me as I preach it, that I would be freed from my own distractions, that I might preach faithfully your text, and that your people might hear it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every few years I quote in a sermon Cyprian, a North African theologian from the 200s. He lived in what is modern-day Tunisia during a time of intense, extreme persecution as Christians all over the Roman world were being locked up and thrown to lions. And Cyprian wrote a letter. In many ways, it was a defense of Christians who were being hunted and attacked. And he wrote this letter, and in it he says something that, that is honestly one of my, it becomes one of my favorite quotes uh, that I know of. And he said this, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their own souls. They have overcome the world. These people 
are the Christians, and I am one of them. In the midst of this chaotic world that they live in, he says, they have found a joy. The question I want to ask you this morning is, have you found this joy that they had back then? Have you found this joy that Cyprian had as he wrote this letter? Some people don't have this joy because of the bad world in which they live. We talked about this last week with the thief on the cross. The world in which we live. How do you deal with this world? We focused on how the thief was preoccupied with Jesus. But other people don't have this joy, not so much because of the world, but because of their own guilt within. Many people don't have this joy, even professing Christians, and not just professing Christians, but true, genuine Christians can live a life without joy, and that's because they themselves don't have confidence before God. So on one hand, our problem is outside of us, external. On the other hand, we would say it's really not outside of us, it's inside of us, it's guilt, it's a lack of of confidence that I have before God. And so therefore, I find myself always defensive, always arguing, always trying harder, always trying to prove myself, trying to not let my pride get hurt, trying to make myself look better than I am because at the end of the day, my problem is not ultimately with these people, but my problem is with God. Let me give you the whole point of my sermon, and then I'll give you my sermon, all right? The point of my sermon is this. In order for you to live with confidence and joy before God, you've got to understand what happened on the cross. If you don't understand what happened on the cross, you will have no joy in the Christian life. If you don't understand what took place on the cross, you will have no confidence before God. And so what I want to do is just meditate this morning on these verses. I want to take our time going through these verses, and I want to explore what happened on the cross. This climactic moment in which Jesus takes his final breath and dies. Think about it. Jesus actually died. We're given a timeline here of what what took place. Of course, you know that uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus was wrongfully arrested. Peter then denied Jesus. Jesus then had a series of sham trials that he was put on, at which point he was unjustly condemned to death. He's whipped, he's beat, he's mocked, a cross put on his back. Finally, there in verse 33, it says simply, and they crucified him. No details as to what that was. The details were far too gruesome to mention, and everybody knew exactly what a a crucifixion was. And so all Luke has to say is, and they crucified him, and everybody knows. Hanging on the cross at 9 a.m., 
The timeline goes on. The sixth hour, there's darkness that comes all over the land. We're going to talk about that darkness. And by the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus died. Now, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, we are actually uh, told what's going on. We, we receive a witness and a testimony as to what's actually happening on the cross as it happens. And it's not Morgan Freeman narrating it. All right? It's not some like fire and brimstone preacher standing at the foot of the cross telling everybody this is what's happening. But it's as if God himself speaks and tells us what's going on at the cross, and he does it through not a narrator or a preacher, but through the heavens. Creation itself speaks in this moment and narrates for us a story. Verses 44 and 45, the sun's light failed. This is 12 o'clock p.m., middle of the day. Sun's right overhead. And all of a sudden, the sun turns black. What's the cause of this? Some people uh, speculate that maybe it was an eclipse, but experts say it's impossible given the time, season, and day that an eclipse could have occurred. Others suggest that maybe it's uh, winds, uh, middle, these heavy Middle Eastern winds that could potentially, in theory, cause the sun to black out, but very unlikely. I think it was supernatural. I think God just turned the lights off to show us that His judgment is coming on Jesus in this moment. Now, you might say, Joel, hold up. That is quite a jump. The lights turn off, and now you're going to say this is a sign of judgment? How do you know that? Well, we've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. We can go to a number of different places, but in particular, I want to go to the book of Amos. So if you'll turn with me to Amos in your Bibles, it's about this far back, all right? Uh, uh, Amos, toward the end of the Old Testament, chapter 8. Here in the book of Amos, uh, we see judgment after judgment. Actually, my friend Brad O'Brien, pastor of, uh, of a church in Federal Hill, is preaching through Amos right now, and I saw him yesterday, and we were talking about this passage, and, and he, he told me, I asked him what he's preaching on uh, to, today, and, uh, and he said, judgment, and he said, that's what I've been preaching on for the last however many weeks, judgment, 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 that's what Amos is all about, all right, Amos is a book where the prophet comes along and basically says, God is going to judge you. These people are hypocrites. These people are filled with injustice. They're filled with anger. They're filled with hatred. There's, there's hypocrisy in all the land, and God has had enough. And he says, I am coming with judgment. Verse 7 of Amos chapter 8, it says, the Lord, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Uh, that's as if God is saying, you've messed up, you've sinned, I'm going to judge you, and I will never forget what you've done. 
Like, look, you can sin against me. Give me about two years. Even if you never repented, we're cool again because I forgot. Right? Like, I think a lot of times we as human beings... As we think of the wrongs that we've committed, I mean, for good, we, 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 there's no way that we could, we could go to every single individual and ask for forgiveness for every single wrong we've ever done. We, we kind of bank on the fact that humans are forgetful. If every human in your life remembered every little wrong thing you've done against them, how would you fare with anybody? Humans are forgetful. God never forgets. Whether it was a big wrong or a little wrong, God never forgets, and he says, and I am coming for you. You see the judgment in Amos. There's a sign of this coming judgment that God is going to give them in verse 9. It says, and on that day declares the, the, the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make the sun go down at noon. All throughout the scriptures, we see human failure. We see God make a covenant with Adam, and, and Adam sins against God. And as a result of his sin, God will not forget it, and the whole human race is now under the curse of death. God makes a covenant with a man named Moses on behalf of all of Israel. And Israel sins against God and therefore loses the promised land, the place of peace and presence with God. There is a day of judgment that is to come. And the sign that Amos gives is that when this judgment comes, the, the, the sun is going to go dark at noon. Now, we could go all through the Old Testament and see how darkness and noon are often signs and symbols of God's judgment. Isaiah 59, verse 10, we stumble at noon as in the twilight. Jeremiah, another book of judgment, chapter 15, verse 8. Jeremiah, as he's declaring a similar kind of judgment to Amos, is, he, says, he says, God says, I have brought a destroyer at noon day. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 9, her son went down while it was yet day. Micah chapter 3, verse 6, the sun shall go down, down, I'm sorry, the sun shall go down upon the prophets and the day shall be black over them. Darkness of the damned. The darkness of those under the curse of God. That's what we're dealing with here. And so when the sun turns off at noon, every single Jew standing around knows exactly what that means. This is the judgment of God. It's not just simply a random event as part of the story of what happened on the cross. But this is the very testimony of creation saying God's judgment is happening right now. William Hendrickson put it this way. He says, hell came to Calvary. Hell came to Calvary and the Savior bore its horrors 
in our place. The big theological word is propitiation. Everybody say propitiation. Propitiation is a word that means wrath bearer or satisfaction of wrath, but it's in some ways more than that. It also has the idea of reconciliation built into it. I'll give you an example of propitiation. You see my son Chapman up here and how he whines and cries for things just as he was doing during our singing time. And uh, suppose uh, he's, we're, we're at home with Chapman and he wants a, uh, a Nintendo Switch from his eight-year-old brother and he's crying for it and whining for it and we say, no, you can't have the Switch and he loses it. And he starts beating up his eight-year-old brother. This happens all the time. He literally just tackled him like two days ago. And we checked on Haddon to make sure he was all right. (laughs) We knew Chapman was fine. And so so, so then the, 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 the righteous anger begins to build within my wife and I. And I really mean it, righteous anger. Like, you can actually have righteous anger, all right? When you're angry at your kids, it's not always sinful, as long as it's channeled in love and righteousness. Amen? Come on, parents. Somebody better say amen in this room. Um, and so what do we do? Well, we put him in timeout. We might give him a little spanking. Don't come at me, all right? Uh, we put him in timeout as well. And, um, and then uh, after some time, we check on him. He's fine. He's happy. He says, uh, I'm sorry, uh, as he's always quick to apologize. We hug him. We say, we love you. What happened? That's propitiation. Propitiation is dealing with it. He's got to deal with the wrong that he's done. And as it's dealt with, we can have a reconciled relationship. Now, God's wrath is nothing like mine. It's actually much greater on one hand. And on the other hand, it's much more controlled. To understand God's wrath, we first have to understand God's character. God, the Bible says, is a holy God. That means forever set apart from us. God is not like us. In Him, there is no sin. In Him is only perfection. He's righteous. He's just. Now we understand God's character, then we look at ourselves. And who are we? We are covenant breakers. We are the descendants of Adam, who broke God's law, who brought the curse of death on all of us. We are the descendants of, of, of Abraham uh, and, and the people who rebelled against God. We are the descendants of sinners, lawbreakers. You are born in sin. You are a rebel against God from birth. This is why you can look at a three-year-old and say, ah, yes, total depravity. You know what I'm saying? Like, we see it in ourselves. I think Stephanie was talking, I had Chapman in the office for two weeks, and Stephanie was talking about how she looks at little, little kids and she just sees a picture of her own relationship with God, right? 
because there's something in us that just is a rebel against God. From birth. Now, if we've sinned against a holy God, we've rejected His Son, we've rejected His image, we've broken the, the, the icon of, 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 of the, the stamp of the image of God that is upon us, and we have wrongly reflected the image of God to the world around us, meaning we've even lied about God to others as we live our lives of sin. Well, what kind of wrath does that incur? Well, it's, it's based on his character, so it's a holy wrath. It's an infinite wrath. It's an eternal wrath. And for us, it is horrific. And for God, it is just. God cannot err in his wrath. If God could err in his wrath, then we might have a, have, have a chance. You know, if I'm going to wrongly judge somebody, maybe you could get away with it at some point because you can point out that I erred somewhere. I made a mistake. And so let's throw the whole case out because one mistake was made. God cannot err. And so he will not err in his judgments. They're always right. Now, somebody might say, well... If God then has, has wrath towards sin, you could just look around and see that there's sin all around the world. Like we live in a problematic society. Rebels, lawbreakers, not man's law, God's law. So where is God's wrath, you might ask? Ah, his mercy, his patience. Just because you're walking up a volcano doesn't mean that there isn't magma on the inside. Like, it might feel all peaceful, a nice little hike up the side of a hill. And then somebody says, you know, this is an active volcano. But you see, his, his mercy, his patience, his forbearing keeps the magma on the inside. But it doesn't mean that judgment is not there. Now, if God was like us, that volcano would, would, would explode, would constantly explode, would be exploding all the time, would have began exploding thousands of years ago. None of us would even be here. But God is not like us. What happened on the cross? The, 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 the magma of God's wrath exploded but it was channeled it's amazing by, by, because of God's grace the lava of his wrath did not pour down on the Roman centurion who just hung him on the cross it didn't pour down on the crowd who just demanded his death but when it explodes, it's channeled directly over the head of Jesus Christ. And every bit of God's infinite, eternal, righteous wrath for your sin, 
for the sins of all of his people in that moment was poured out onto Jesus Christ. And he drank all of it. This is what's happening on the cross. Quick question of application. If he drank all of it for his people, is there any left for you to drink? He paid it all, saints. <laughs> he paid it all. Creation goes on in its testimony in verse 45. The threads of the curtain in the temple which separated the presence of God from the people of God, the threads just miraculously came apart and the temple uh, curtain was torn in two, signifying this simple truth that because of the cross, because of the judgment that is being absorbed by Jesus, never again will God's Spirit be separated from God's people. The curtain was torn in two back in Luke 23 now. Jesus in verse 46 at this point cries with a loud voice. He cries with a loud voice. Pause for a second. History tells us that if you were hanging on the cross, that the last couple hours of, of your life would have been spent speechless. You would have nothing left. The criminal would hang on the cross, gasping for air for three, four, five hours, unable to make a sound. His life slowly leaking out of his body. Finally, he would be unresponsive for another significant amount of time, and then his heart would stop. A slow death is what occurred on the cross. When Jesus dies at 3 p.m., what does he do? It says he cried with a loud voice. That word loud is intentional there. He didn't just cry out with a voice. He cried out, Luke says, with a loud voice, meaning he still had energy in his body. He still had strength in his body. L listen, we've got to remember, Jesus was not merely a victim. Yes, he was a victim in some sense of the word, but he was not merely a murder victim. His life was not taken from him. What does John chapter 10 tell us about the good shepherd? Verse 11, it says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, even in the moment of his death, nobody made him die. Even in the moment of his death, nobody forced him to be the sacrifice for your sin. But it's almost as if in this moment he just decides to die. It's done. It is finished. And he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He prayed. And then he died. It's interesting. He prays there Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is often in the Jewish community used as a bedtime prayer. Just before going to sleep. It's a prayer which basically says, God, 
In this moment, I'm entering the realm of helplessness, and I trust you for vindication. I trust you completely with my life. Jesus, as he goes into the sleep of death, prays this prayer. And he shows us all how to die. For the Christian, death is not merely a leap into the abyss of question marks. But death is a final gift to the Christian. In our death, it is our final act of faith as we look to God. And I pray all of us would have, whether we say the words or not, that we'll have the same spirit. God, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Church, have faith until death. Have faith in God until death. Jesus prays this prayer, and the king is dead. Now immediately we see responses to his death. First is the response of the Roman centurion. A centurion is a man who traditionally would have a hundred soldiers By this time, it could be 80, it could be 120. It wasn't specifically about the number, but he's like a platoon leader. He's a general. He's the one that's there with the platoon of Roman soldiers who were commissioned to carry out this crucifixion, meaning the centurion has been overseeing the nails going into his hands and feet. He's been overseeing the whole mocking process, maybe participating in it. And just like the thief on the cross had a change, the centurion has a change. And we see his response come in verse 47. It says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he says he praised God. There's no qualifier there. Luke doesn't say he praised a God or the gods of Rome. Or the God he thought God was. But Luke tells us he actually praised God. He's experienced a change in the other Gospels. We're told that he confesses also, surely this man was the Son of God. He confesses the divinity and lordship of Jesus Christ. And here he says, certainly this man was innocent. Now this is crazy that the, the centurion declares he's in this is this would be like the, the whoever it is that like pulls the switch for the electric chair and as soon as it's done he declares wow this this guy was innocent when i was a, a kid a 24 year old neighbor of ours killed a girl and then a couple months later killed another girl right up the street from us raped Strangled, burned. He finally was caught. 19 years later, he uh, sat on death row. And February 7th, 2006, uh, he died by lethal injection. My mother was in conversation with this man up until his execution through letters. And, and he, in the letters, confessed like everything and said, like, I was wrong confessed to the fact that he deserved to die. Right before his execution, he gave a statement to the family and said that he's getting what he deserves. 
In any execution, the guilt of the one being executed, executed is absolutely paramount. I mean, this is why ethicists even debate whether or not we should use capital punishment, is can we ensure that the person is guilty? And uh, that debate is not for this time. But my point is this, is you got to be guilty. It's shocking. It's, it's shocking that the centurion, as soon as he dies, declares the fact that we unjustly killed him. Not from a spectator, not even from his friends, but from the Roman centurion. You see, Luke has been making this constant theme of Jesus' innocence as as one of the highlights of the way his book ends. In chapter 23, this is the seventh time Jesus has been declared to be innocent by four different people. Pilate declared him to be innocent three times. Herod declared him to be innocent. The thief on the cross declared him to be innocent. And now the Roman centurion is also declaring Jesus to be innocent. This is saying that Jesus was not a villain, but Jesus was the victim. And Jesus was not just the victim, but Jesus was the willing sacrifice. This is what the centurion declares. We see another response in verse 48, the response of the crowds. Verse 48, all uh, uh, all of the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. What does beating their breasts mean? Well, Luke has already used the phrase beating of the breast once in Luke. And so I think Luke is making a point about the response of the crowds. Uh, If you go back in Luke to Luke chapter 19, we see the story there of two men praying in the temple. And one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. And the Pharisee prays, God, thank you for not making me like this sinner over here. And then we hear the prayer of the tax collector. But before we hear the prayer, Lord have mercy, the tax collector says, beat his breast. Beating one's breast is a sign of repentance. It's a sign of owning guilt. It's a sign of a a deep sadness that is attached to a turning from sin. As the crowd goes home, it says, they went home beating their breasts. For them, I believe what they realized is, as we have called out for this man's death and as we've witnessed it, that that he is actually not the villain, but, but we are. Let me ask you this question. Who's the villain? Is is Jesus the villain or are you? You see, a a lot of folks are going to turn this around and they're going to actually, in the deep recesses, recesses of their heart, 
believe that God is the villain. And I'll tell you why. I heard a story of somebody that grew up on a milking cow farm, dairy farm, I guess is what you'd call it. And uh, they said that they would milk these cows, and, and then if a cow stopped producing milk, they had no need for the cow. And so that night they would have steak. They said we did the same thing with chickens. We had chickens and we loved our chickens for one purpose. They gave us eggs. And if at any point a chicken would stop giving us eggs, we would have stew that night. See, some people come to God because of what they think they can get from God. Yeah, they love God. They, 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 they go to church every Sunday. They uh, are in Sunday school classes. They read books. They, they pray. They seem to be a very pious individual. But the, the, they've been told that if you get God, then God will give you something. In this world, they've been promised prosperity. They've been promised peace. They've been promised success. They've been promised freedom from stress. And so the question for them is, has God worked for you? Does God work for you? And then here's the dilemma, is when God stops seemingly working for them, they stop working for God. And as quickly as they got God, they get rid of God. Look, church, is God the villain in your life? Because you don't get from God what you want to get from God? Or I wonder if somebody here would say, look, I never came to God to get life in this world. I came to God to get forgiveness of sins. I came to God because Jesus paid it all. He took my biggest problem, and that is not the bills at my house, but that is the bill I owe before God in church. That is a bill that you can never pay off for all of eternity in a million and 20 years from now, you're going to still be paying off that bill. It is an eternal debt that Jesus paid for you on the cross, are you trusting in Him? Is that why you've come to Christ? Are, are you a victim or a villain? The way you answer that question says a lot about your repentance. If you're going to play the victim in this world, you've got this bill to pay. Nobody's paying it for you. But if you say, no, I'm a villain, I've got good news for you. At the cross, Jesus turned his villains into friends. It's the great irony, isn't it, of the Christian life. It's like everybody else is like, man, like, you know, the, the way you preach and the way you, what you believe about God, it just makes me kind of feel bad about myself. And I'm like, good. It just makes me feel like I'm a villain. Exactly. But isn't it an irony that it's not until we become spiritually broke that we become inheritance of the earth? Like, isn't it an irony 
until we recognize that we've got a sin debt that we can never pay, that we realize, oh, it's been paid. You've got a gift beyond your comprehension. Yeah, the great irony is at the cross, Jesus turns his villain into friends. Where do I see that? Well, look at the crowds. These are the people who shouted out, Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! These are the people who demanded the death of Jesus Christ. These are the people who have been wagging their heads at him. These are the people who have been mocking him. These are the people who have been uh, name-calling him, laughing at him, scorning, on, scorning him on the cross. And now they go home beating their breasts. Some people say, well, it's, it's likely not true repentance. They probably just felt bad. It would be too unlikely that they would have experienced true repentance. But friends, when... Is true repentance ever likely? You know what I'm saying? Like when it came to you, it wasn't likely. You had a hundred opportunities to repent of your sins. And every time they were all unlikely. And then all of a sudden something happened. And what was unlikely became a miracle. You were reborn and you repented. You turned from your sins. I'm just saying that in Acts chapter 2, there are 3,000 people who are baptized and added to the number that, that day. They came from somewhere. And I don't know for sure, but I wonder if some of that 3,000 were these crowds, maybe hundreds of them, were there as witnesses to the cross, maybe hundreds of them, who previously had called for the name of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Villains turned into friends. God says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let me close with just one more lesson from the cross. And that is this, Jesus is the Savior all by himself. He's the Savior all by himself. In verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Not one apostle died for your sins. Not one of the wonderful women who supported his ministry hung on the cross for your sins. Not one saint can offer forgiveness for your sins. Not, there's not a pastor out there that can mediate between you and God. My point is this. Jesus died as the Savior all by himself. Now, Jesus lived his life as a model of Christian community. He did everything as a team. As he lives his life, he's walking with his disciples. They're sleeping together. They're ministering together. They're even healing together. It's like life-on-life -life discipleship, hardcore. It's the model for all of us, even as we live our church. Let's do it together. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do it together. 
You see what I'm saying? Where were they when he died? They stood at a distance. He died on that hill all alone. They stood at a distance. Their dreams in this moment had been dashed. Everything that they had hoped for in Christ had now abruptly come to an end as the king is dead. They are, in a word, confused. But listen, they don't know the whole story. They don't know the whole story of what God is doing in this moment and what is about to happen three days later. For Jesus rose from the dead. Point is this. None of us stand at a distance from the cross anymore. It's no longer confusing to us. We're told what happened on the cross. And so our response is to run as fast as we can and cling with all of our might to the cross of Jesus Christ. On December 25th, 400 Christians were arrested in a certain town because they were celebrating Christmas. This town persecuting the Christians put these 400 individuals into a prison on on the top of a hill. The next day on December 26th, a uh, 9.0 on the Richter scale earthquake hit the town And 80% of the people perished in the earthquake. 400 Christians were safe because they were on top of this hill that wasn't harmed. Oh, they were confused. No doubt about it. They didn't know what was going on. But they were saved on a hill. I wonder if somebody knows that you were saved on a hill. If Jesus Christ did not climb up the hill of Calvary to to step into your chains, to step into your prison cell, to step into the judgment that you deserved, I wonder how many here would say, I would have had no hope. Knowing what I did as a child growing up, I would have had no hope. Knowing what I did in high school growing up, I would have had no hope of redemption or salvation. Knowing what I did in college, I would have had no hope. Knowing what I did in my young adult life, I would have had no hope. And knowing what I did last night, I would have had no hope. But Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. And so our response then is to have confidence in Jesus Christ. God wants us to have confidence in our relationship with him. Someone might say, well, does this mean then that we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Does God's grace give us the license to sin? Of course it doesn't. But if you sin, James says, we have a Savior. He paid it all. He paid it all. And so all then, what? What's our response? All to him I owe. Sin had left 
a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus paid it all. We pray, God, that we would be people who live in his grace, who pursue godliness and holiness, not out of a desire to save ourselves, but out of the delight of the salvation we have received in Jesus Christ. All to you we owe. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.